When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken. And welcome back to round two of our Old Testament scripture study for this year. The fact that it's our second lesson does my heart good because it means you're back for a second date, which I didn't always get in high school and college. So I hope that you enjoyed our first experience and, and that you've, you've rolled up your sleeves and are ready to dive in for more. Because boy, do we have our work cut out for us today. We are going to create the heavens and the earth, or at least we're going to watch God do it. Uh, better yet, actually, we're going to watch God try to create us because that's the real purpose of this creation story. If you remember last week when we talked about the, Moses' questions as he's watching the universe unfold before his eyes, he was wondering about the why and the how. And the Lord shifted both of those questions into whose. The, the why was for us. This is my work and my glory to bring to pass your immortality and eternal life. And the how was another who, and the who was him. By, my, by mine only begotten have I created these things. So that behind all of these creation accounts, and we'll study multiple today, we're meant to see the fingerprints of God. And more than that, his finger pointing in our direction, that we're the purpose for all of this. Now, that's not to say there aren't some physical and geological and astronomical uh, realities in the creation accounts. It's actually amazing if you have the eyes to see that there's a lot of science in here, even though it was written by the ancients. Uh, if you picture, let there be light at the beginning. And, and if, if science suggests that the universe was created by some big bang, well, let there be light and some massive explosion of matter. Oh, that, that might be a pretty good description of it. Uh, as planets and stars and moons and suns begin to form then, uh, to see a, a, an atmosphere begin to uh, be established around this, around this globe, to see seas and, and water separate and life emerge from the ocean first, uh, eventually uh, culminating in life on earth. Uh, it, it is amazing to watch the creation account from a scientific viewpoint and realize Wow, the ancient Israelites knew more than they knew. Now, that's not to say that that's the purpose of it all. Uh, because again, God had higher uh, purpose in his, in his creation accounts than simply uh, geology or astronomy. It is theology that he is giving us. It's the who, namely God and namely us, that he's trying to convey. And so my hope is that today as we study these accounts, we'll understand the spiritual realities behind God's creative work and glory. It's interesting that uh, when Mark Twain wrote Life on the Mississippi, he was describing the river that he grew up on, uh, a river that he loved from boyhood on. But as he got older and began to learn the, the mechanics of the river, as he became a, a riverboat captain and began to learn uh, just the source of every swirl and eddy almost, uh, that this is life or death and you have to know exactly how the river is going to run and how erosion works and how currents and rainfall and, and the, the swells and dips and everything else. 
he said that the river lost some of its magic to him. And it's just this interesting, this, this shift on his part of going from the majesty of the mighty Mississippi to the science of, of rainfall and, and river currents and, and, and losing something in that. I've seen it among friends who, who set out to study the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, uh, because they loved it. And then immersed in higher criticism uh, rather than higher spirit, they, they started learning things but losing things along the way. And my prayer is that that will not happen to us this, this year. That instead we will, yes, learn, but also deepen our love for the, 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 the person behind the pages and to be able to see God behind every, every jot and tittle. I could say the same about creation and the universe, that sometimes as we immerse ourselves in the science of it all, trying to make sense of the how, and again, I'm so grateful that science has figured out so many hows. Uh, like I said last week, I turn to science when I need method, but I turn to religion when I need meaning. I turn to science when I want to understand process, but I turn to religion when I want to understand purpose. Science does a great job of explanation, but religion does an incredible job with awe. And it's awe that I hope we will feel for God and for God's view of us, his children, as we study the creation. In some ways, it reminds me of the lyrics of the beautiful hymn, How Great Thou Art. O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder, so there's the awe, there's the wonder. Remember Moses said when he beheld all these things, the same he, he marveled and wondered at. That's, I hope, our experience today. So when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. And then a little closer to home, when through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur, and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze, then sings my soul. More than my mind, my soul, and it sings my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. And honestly, I think if God were to hear us praising out of our awesome wonder, he would We'll actually see him do this in a couple of weeks in, in Moses chapter 7. He would turn it back on us and just say, it's for you. That's, you are my work and my glory. So take all of this awe, this awesome wonder, and, and see it reflected in the universe, in the world all around you, and see me looking down through my creation at my greatest creation, my daughters and my sons. So let's pray that the Holy Ghost infuses our discussion today with some of that awesome wonder. Think back to times where you have been in awe of the creation and that it has awakened within you a desire to connect with the Creator that's behind it all. Where you've seen the, the brush strokes, so to speak, and realized that there was a hand behind the canvas, uh, some artist's eye that was, that was picturing things and then allowing us to step into that reality. If you've ever seen the, if you've ever looked down at the Grand Canyon or looked up at the Redwoods, if you've ever been enveloped in the mist of, of Niagara Falls 
Those were all jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring experiences for me. Or even pulling over in the middle of a long road trip, in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, in the deserts of Nevada, and pulling over so I could actually get out of the car and look up and see the heavens in ways that I never could through the smog of Los Angeles growing up. To see the ocean, or even to fly down to Puerto Rico on my mission and just see this island in, in this vast ocean and realize that there was a God behind it all. It's incredible. A few summers ago, I was in Alaska speaking at a YSA conference, and, and our hosts, the Ramptons, just amazing couple, they took us out on Prince William Sound to see some glaciers, and it was incredible. We were on this big boat, and at one point, I just I went to the back of the boat by myself, right next to the engines, because the engines were so loud uh, that I knew that they would drown out my voice no matter how loudly I sang, all creatures of our God and King. And I belted out those alleluias because I felt it surrounded by such incredible glory to see whales and to see eagles in the wild, to see uh, glaciers sloughing off into the sea. It, it, it was mind-blowing. It was awe-inspiring. And that's the experience that I think God wants us to have more than some kind of scientific experiment. He wants us to see Him. One last example. Years ago, uh, it was the first year I was going to be teaching the Doctrine and Covenants in seminary. And back then, there would be a chance for all the seminary and institute teachers in the world, basically, to come together at BYU for a, a church education symposium. And Elder Neil A. Maxwell of the Quorum of the Twelve gave the keynote address there. And I remember thinking, what's he going to teach us about the Doctrine and Covenants, since that's what we're all going to be teaching this upcoming year? Well, it, it surprised me that his, his talk, in some ways, had nothing to do with the Doctrine and Covenants. In other ways, it had everything to do with it. Because what he ended up doing was giving a talk he called Our Creator's Cosmos. And it was filled with pictures from the Hubble telescope, for example, and just showing the vastness of, of creation and the hands of the Creator that, went be, that, went, that were all behind it. And, and what amazed me was, I just remember thinking, what, what does this have to do with the Doctrine and Covenants? And then the light came on. He's introducing us to the speaker behind every revelation. To put in perspective, and boy, is it a broad one, how, how God has governed the universe and the fact he would condescend to speak to us and reveal his will to prophets on this tiny planet is incredible. I actually ran into a colleague who, who loved Elder Maxwell and, and said at one point earlier on in his life, I wanted to learn from the people Elder Maxwell was learning from. And so not only did he read every Elder Maxwell talk and book, he went through all the footnotes and read all the talks and books that Elder Maxwell referred to. And I remember running into him after that talk and said, you've got yourself a whole new genre, don't you? And he smiled. He said, yeah, I'm going to be reading a lot of astrophysics, I guess, for the next little while. Uh, again, if we can see the Lord behind creation, then we will stand in awesome wonder. And that's the hope here. What did the psalmist say? The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. Or as it says in the Doctrine and Covenants, a cosmic revelation, section 88, as it's describing sun and moon and stars and planets moving in their orbits, and then summarizes it with this, that any man who hath seen any or the least of these hath seen God moving in his majesty and power. That's the experience I pray for in the next little while.
as we study these creation accounts. Now, Genesis is going to be our home base, uh, building on, on common beliefs with our, our fellow Christians and Jews around the world. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us the creation story. Now, remember last week we talked about Moses is the Joseph Smith translation of those first uh, chapters in Genesis. So Moses 2 and 3, we got the prelude in, or the prologue in 1, and now we're going to have the symphony open up uh, with this, this, this composition of the cosmos. That's going to be Moses 2 and 3. There, there's incredible similarities. Those are the closest ones between Genesis and Moses. And then we get the, the Abraham account in Abraham 4 and 5, which again is a masterpiece, which adds to the who in a, in a way to add to the why and the, and the, and the what for in, in these creation accounts. We could also add the temple as the ultimate source of creation, and yet it's the most different of the four that we have. Genesis, Moses, Abraham, temple is its own, is its own story because it has its own purpose. And again, the Lord does not quote-unquote, waste temple time giving us geology lessons. He's teaching us theology. He's teaching us something about him and something about us. And so as he shifts the order of events in the creation account in the temple, uh, it is amazing to watch this crescendo as he, as he emphasizes us, his sons and daughters, and our, our purpose in the plan and the Savior's purpose and, and place in the plan as well. Now, like I said, Genesis is going to be our home base, but a quick field trip first to Moses to get us back up to speed, build some momentum uh, into the creation accounts. If you remember last week in verse 35, as Moses is having his mind blown and seeing worlds without number, and then the Lord brings him back in, puts the blinders on, so to speak, parts the veil to say, I got a lot going on, but then puts the blinders on to say, let's just focus on what matters most to you, Moses. And so he says, only an account of this earth and the inhabitants thereof give I unto you. And then again, put it in, in a broader perspective. For behold, there are many worlds that have passed away by the word of my power. So there's creation past. There are many that now stand. So there's creation present. And innumerable are they unto man. But all things are numbered unto me, for they are mine, and I know them. And if there is creation past and present then there must, seems to be creation future as well. These worlds without number. To see science that is coming to wrestle with an expanding universe and a universe that is expanding at an ever-increasing rate. It is mind-blowing to see worlds without number. And again, let's focus then in on the one world that matters most to you. He's, that's how he begins the creation account in chapter 2. Moses 2.1, Behold, I reveal unto you concerning this heaven and this earth. And then putting that in proper perspective, reinserting the who among all of this what and how, I am the beginning and the end, the almighty God. So there's the infinite that we talked about last week. By mine only begotten, I created these things. There's the, the who behind the how. Yea, in the beginning... And now we're back up to where we're, where we're used to starting in the Genesis account, in the beginning. But like we talked about last week, that beginning isn't quite the beginning. There was much that took place earlier, and Abraham is our best source for that. If you remember last week when we were talking about that premortal council in heaven, and they all assemble, Christ and the Father and the noble and great ones that would eventually become the rulers, and there stood one among them that was like unto God, and he said unto those who were with him, 
we will go down, for there is space there. And we will take of these materials, and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell. Now talk about a change in perspective. The fact that we will take of these materials, we'll see that more in a moment, that there's, there's already matter that exists. And it's, a, and it's a matter of taking that matter and organizing it into an earth. Notice the, the pronoun, we will go down, which begs the question, who's the we? Now, in Hebrew, the word for God is Elohim, and yet im is a plural ending. In English, we add an S. In Hebrew, you add an I-M. And so to take an L, E-L, of the word for God, and make it Elohim, there's the gods. We'll see that clarified in the book of Abraham, uh, most dramatically. But to see the we there, now remember in context, there is one like unto God, and he said, we will go down. So is this the, the Son and the Father as the we? Now the answer is yes to that on day six when humanity is created. We'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. And yes, we're meant to see God the Father through the creation, but really it's the handiwork of Christ the Son. There's a great verse in Ephesians that says, God who created all things by Jesus Christ. So... Yes, God is behind it all, but it was done by Jesus. A simple analogy would be that God, the Father, is the, is the architect, and Jesus Christ is the general contractor. Okay? We see the Father's plan behind all of this, but the Son implementing that plan. But again, in context of Abraham 3, this is Christ, like unto the Father, but speaking amidst the noble and great ones. So there's another possibility for the we. We will go down. Is that Christ and the noble and great ones that are coming down to participate in the creation of the world? Now, we can understand from sacred places that Christ and, and Michael, the archangel, uh, would participate in the creation of, the, of this earth. And since we learn from Revelation that the pre-mortal Michael is the mortal Adam, then that stands to reason also that Adam, the first man upon this earth, would also have his hand in, in helping to create it. But again, to, to, to expand that and include the noble and great ones, if you take section 138, which we studied at the end of last year, and see that those noble and great ones included so many of the Old Testament saints that we will study this year, uh, but also included uh, people like Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and John Taylor and others, that it included not just Father Adam, but our glorious mother Eve and many of her daughters. I mean, if you look at the world, if... If it doesn't suggest a woman's touch, I don't know what does. To see the beauty of creation. In fact, Josephine Smith said, It is true that Adam helped to form this earth. He labored with our Savior Jesus Christ. But then he added, I have a strong view or conviction that there were others also who assisted them. Perhaps Noah and Enoch, and why not Joseph Smith and those who were appointed to be rulers before the earth was formed? And again, add all those listed in section 138, and you have quite the, the, the company of creators. Uh, did you or I get to help? Uh, well, if I got to help, I'm, I'm guessing I was probably sent to somewhere where I couldn't do much damage. Uh, I'm, I'm not an artist uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So he probably sent me out in the desert somewhere and said, work on dirt and sagebrush. Uh, you, can't, you can't go too far afield on that. Whereas many of you artists out there were probably the ones... Uh, helping with Niagara or, or Yosemite or whatever it might be. Uh, but to understand the participatory nature of creation, 
we will see as God doesn't just give us a final canvas, but rather begins the process whereby we can participate. That plants will have seed within themselves, that animals will reproduce after their own kind, that man and woman are told to be fruitful and to multiply, to participate in creation. And then having dropped the hints at those intriguing possibilities, Abraham 3 then shifts to Abraham chapter 4, which is his creation account and yet gives us the, the most unique perspective. He says, Then the Lord said, Let us go down. And they went down at the beginning, and they, that is the gods, organized and formed the heavens and the earth. So talk about participation. In the Genesis account, it is, and God said. In the Moses account, it's, it's first person instead of third person. And I, God, said. But in Abraham account, it is, it is plural, and the gods said. So here's Christ, here's the noble and great ones participating in this process. In fact, Joseph Smith taught it this way. In the beginning, so there's our, our creation catchphrase. In the beginning, the head of the gods called a council of the gods. And they came together and concocted a plan to create the world and people it. Now this head of the gods calling a council of the gods, this is not some kind of Egyptian or Greek or Roman polytheism. This is our heavenly father, head of the gods. But as we are spirit children of heavenly parents, we are included within that, that group. And so he calls this council of the gods. We'll see this actually more clearly when we get to the book of Jeremiah. There's some fascinating verses in Jeremiah 23 that talk about false prophets versus true. And how can you tell the difference? The true ones stood in the council with God. Now in the King James Version, I'll give you the example. For who hath stood in the counsel of the Lord, he asks. And then later, as he again is countering false prophets, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, now the King James translators didn't do us any favors by the way they spelled that word, because they spelled it C-O-U-N-S-E-L, which to us in modern English is, is words of advice. And so to stand in the counsel of God seems to suggest, oh, we're just, we're, we're, we're trying to follow his direction. We're taking his advice. But the King James is one of the only translations that spells it that way. All the more modern ones spell it correctly, which is C-O-U-N-C-I-L, an assembly. Some even use that term. And so how can you tell a true prophet? They stood in the council, in the assembly, in the inner circle of God. And that's what Abraham 3 suggests and what Abraham 4 and 5 with the creation account gives us as well. The gods, plural, are coming down to participate in this. Now, in the Abraham account, they're not yet coming down because the way it, Abraham sets it up is this is the premortal plan for the earth. If you look at the chapter heading of Abraham 4, the gods plan the creation of the earth and all life thereon. Their plans for the six days of creation are set forth. Then the chapter heading for chapter 5, the gods finish their planning of the creation of all things. They bring to pass the creation according to their plans. In fact, consider this language from Abraham chapter 5. Verse 1, And thus we will finish the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them. Did you catch the verb tense? Thus we will finish. 
It isn't happening yet. They're planning it in advance, in pre-mortality. Let us go down. We'll take these materials. We'll make an earth whereupon these may dwell. Well, how are we going to do that? We've had our, our council and our war in heaven already at the end of three. Here am I, send me. No, here am I, send me. I will send the first. We saw that last week. And then, okay, this is how we're going to do it. Now that we've decided to, to honor the Father's plan and move forward in implementing it, what kind of an earth will we create for these to dwell upon? And so here's the plan. How about Abraham 5 verse 2? And the gods said among themselves, on the seventh time we will end our work, which we have counseled. So again, hasn't happened yet, but here we are in the counseling, in the planning stage. Uh, verse 3. And thus were their decisions at the time that they counseled among themselves to form the heavens and the earth. So this was not some kind of last second project. Okay? This was not uh, slapping together the universe because tomorrow's the due date. No, this was planned in advance. This is part of God's premortal plan, part of what we counseled together to accomplish. Now, some have considered this the spiritual creation, and I suppose that's one way to describe it, but there is a difference here. This is a, the planning of the physical creation. There is a spiritual creation where God took intelligence and created spirit, spiritual versions of all the temporal, physical versions that would, that would eventually follow. You get a hint of that actually in the book of Genesis, of all places. Genesis 2 verse 5, every plant of the field before it was in the earth, every herb of the field before it grew. He talks about creating man before there was any man upon the earth. Well, when does that happen? Okay. Again, we're getting clues and hints of premortality. It's more clearly described in the Doctrine and Covenants in section 29, for by the power of my spirit created I them. Yea, all things, both spiritual and temporal. First, spiritual. Secondly, temporal, which is the beginning of my work. And again, first, temporal. And secondly, spiritual, which is the last of my work. We get this first shall be last, last shall be first kind of a, a, a reversal of things. That if at the beginning of God's work is I'm going to create things spiritually and then create them temporally. Well, in the end, here we all are in our temporal existence. And unfortunately, that our, our physical, our temporal existence takes pride of, of place. Well, the Lord is trying to shift that and here at the end of his work, get we temporal beings to lean into our spiritual realities and spiritual roles more fully. So we're seeing both of these. Now, Elder Bednar of the Quorum of the Twelve gave an amazing uh, parallel here when it comes to prayer. That in the morning, as we as we begin our, our day on our knees, we can spiritually create our day. Or if we use the Abrahamic account of, of the creation, we are planning our creative processes. Today, Heavenly Father, I intend to do these things. Please help me accomplish them. Then throughout our day, we are trying to put into practice, we're trying to create physically what we created spiritually in that morning prayer. And then at the end of the day, we come back to our knees, come back to our Father in heaven, and return and report on what we have accomplished. Were we able to bring physical reality out of the spiritual creation that we began at the beginning of our day? You get a sense of that in these creation accounts, particularly with Abraham's help. Now, let's come back to Genesis and start there, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. 
Now, Joseph Smith would interrupt us right up from the get-go and say, well, wait, wait, now, now the word create came from the word bara, which does not mean to create out of nothing. It means to organize, the same as a man would organize materials and build a ship. Hence, we infer that God had materials to organize the world out of chaos, chaotic matter, which is element, and in which dwells all the glory. Element had an existence from the time he had. The pure principles of element are principles which can never be destroyed. They may be organized and reorganized, but not destroyed. They had no beginning and can have no end. Now, even science would perk up its ears at that and think, oh, that's simply the law of conservation of mass. Wonderful. Now, we don't know where all that mass comes from to begin with, and neither science nor religion has answers to that question yet. But to understand that elements are eternal, section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants says that clearly, the elements are eternal. And to think about element and spirit coming together, we'll see that clearly with the creation of Adam and Eve, dust and, and breath, symbolically speaking. But that's true of us as God's crowning creation as well. Again, from the Doctrine and Covenants, same section, 93. In 33, he says the elements are eternal, but in verse 29, he says, man was also in the beginning with God intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can be. Now what those two verses reveal to us and what Joseph Smith is pushing back against in that quote that I just shared is the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, which just means creation out of nothing. For some reason, there's this sense that the ultimate thing God could do to show his, his omnipotence, his all powerfulness, is that he could create things out of no things that he could create matter out of nothing. And yet, I'll, I'll put it this way, is that the highest evidence of power and wisdom? I've got friends that are general contractors, and I think they would all agree that creation ex nihilo would actually be way easier than organizing and refashioning existent matter. If you've ever seen those fixer-upper programs on TV, it's like, okay, we have, this is something that's already there, and so I don't have, the sky isn't the limit. I'm trying to work within these confines, but make something incredible out of something that, that doesn't look quite so good. To, to me, to picture a God who doesn't just wave his magic wand and create something out of nothing, but rather takes existing materials and refashions to remake we do have a God who specializes in recreating things, in refashioning, in remaking, in redeeming. I think too often, especially when we've lived long enough to know that we're, that we're fixer-uppers, that we think, if only I could start over again. If only God could banish me, that's what Alma prayed for, so I could begin anew. If he could create out of nothing a saint, someone like him, and I love the, the reality behind creation for God to say, no, I, I didn't even do that with the universe. And I'm certainly not going to do that with you. I can take other things, whatever, I can take whatever matter you, you consist of. I can take, I can take whatever you're, you're, you've got to offer me. Remember Isaiah's phrase, beauty for ashes? I think too many of us think, that my life consists of the burned out shell of hopes that I never lived into, of, of purposes that God intended for me that I fell short of, and it's too late for me. 
And yet what would the creator of the universe say? Oh, this is how I do things. I take existing material and I turn it into something beautiful. Do you have any matter for me? And for us, when we think all I have is ash, and I can picture the Lord saying, oh, that's one of my favorite media. You should see what I can do with ash. I can bring beauty out of that if you'll just offer it to me. I had a student years ago, an incredible artist, uh, who has since has done all kinds of things with almost any medium you can name. He's done art, uh, he's done painting, he's done drawing, he's done stained glass windows, he's done sculpture. Uh, he's incredibly gifted. But I remember as a high school kid, he made a, a sculpture of a human head that looked really different. I'm like, what is that? And he said, oh, I made it out of crackers. I'm like, wait, what? And somehow he had, I don't know even where he got the idea. He was probably just so good at art that thinking, oh, clay, stone, other, those materials are way too easy. Let me try something new. Let's go with crackers. I can use uh, veggie straws as the hair and it'll look like it's just waving in the wind. And I'll take all these crackers and somehow fashion a head out of them, which he did. Uh, it's amazing. But to see a God with such artistic ability, such redeeming power to take whatever you are, whatever you've become or failed to become, if we'll just hand over that material, ash and all, he will create something beautiful. It's what he did with the earth itself. And that's what we're getting with this creation account. Now remember, this is not a geology lesson or an astronomy lesson alone. This is a theology lesson. And so despite the fact that he's describing the creation of, the, of, the, of this earth, this heaven and this earth, to me, even more importantly, he is teaching us principles of how you and I can navigate our own creation upon this earth in aims of this heaven. Now, if the, remember the way it begins in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, that the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now, if that doesn't describe us in our unperfected state, I don't know what does. I sometimes joke with my institute students, said, you know what? Without form and void is a pretty apt description of each of us. Uh, why do you think we go to the gym? Because we are without form. Uh, why are we here in college? Because men mentally, intellectually, we are void. And I'm trying to fill in some of those holes. I mean, to think about who we are now compared to who God wants us to become, because how does this chapter end? If it starts with without form and void, and it ends with God himself pronouncing his creation very good, oh, that's my dream for myself. I'd love to go from, a, from the state I am now to a state where God could consider me very good. Well, how do we do it? We follow the principles he gives us in this creation account. If you worry that your life lacks structure, that it's without form, if it's without any real content, it's void. If you lack light or vision of what you can truly become with God's help, there's the darkness upon the face of the deep. Well, what will change all that? What's the, the moving force behind creation? And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Invite the Spirit of God into your life and watch what he will do to fill the void and to shape the form and to give you light and vision of what it is that you can become. In the ancient world, water was often used as a symbol of chaos. 
which is a pretty good description since the currents and the waves and the wind and everything just, it goes all over the place. There's not the structure that you'd see on dry land. We'll see that when we get to day four. But what I love about this idea of, of the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters, he, here he is bringing order out of chaos. In a way, it's like Jesus there on, on the waters of the Sea of Galilee saying, peace, be still. He's still in control of that. And what we next see is that creative hand working through these days, these periods of creation, uh, one through seven. Now, even that tells us, teaches us a principle that God didn't do it all at once. Uh, be patient with yourself. If even God divided up creation uh, into these phases where I'll do this and then I'll do this and then later we'll accomplish this. There are some prerequisite courses we need before we take our upper division ones, right? Uh, there needs to be an atmosphere before plants can, can thrive. There needs to be plants so that animals have something to eat. There's, there's a line upon line progression through the days of creation. And, and there should be in our own life too. I remember having a conversation with a student that was just beating herself up for not being better than she was, despite the fact that she was about as good as anyone I'd ever met. Uh, and at one point in the midst of her, her self-deprecation, I just paused and said, how old are you? Which typically isn't a, a question you want to ask, but if they're in college, you can usually get away with it. And she sheepishly told me she was in her 20s, and I just smiled and I said, I'm twice your age, and I'm still not where I want to be. But give yourself time, time, times, half a time, however much time you need. Just give yourself, be patient and allow patience to have her perfect work, as James says. I love the fact that a God who could do it all at once and snap the finger and accomplish this great work instead shows us that even from his omnipotence, he takes time to allow things to to grow into what they need to become. By the way, uh, the rest of the skeptical world that would look at this and say, wait a minute, he calls it a day on day one and day two and day three when the sun isn't even created until day four? Why are you calling these days? And then add to that what science would say to biblical literalists that say, nope, these were six days. And so that's how old the earth is. Young Earth Creationism is what it's called. And the idea there is that there were six 24-hour periods plus a seventh 24-hour period of rest, and that's where we get the Earth. Uh, and so, depending on who you're asking, if you're doing the dating like Bishop Usher did back in the in medieval times, that the fall took place about 4004 BC, then the Earth is supposed to be about 6,000 years old. That's it. And science would say, that's ludicrous. Now, there's others that say, okay, well, we're not confined to 24-hour periods because the book of Peter, and we would add the book of Abraham, says that one day with God is a thousand years with man. Oh, okay, so these seven days of creation are actually 7,000 years of creation. And then add the 6,000 years of, of the earth's temporal existence so far, and we're up to, what, 13? Which, again, science would roll their eyes at. Well, what I love about this idea of calling them days, and notice how he always puts it, the evening and the morning were the first day, or the evening and the morning were the second day. In Judaism, the day doesn't begin at midnight, it begins at nightfall, and it's based on the, this Genesis creation account. In the evening and the morning, that's, that's what constitutes a day. 
by the way, uh, there's this, this liminal period of twilight that you don't really know what to do with. Uh, technically, the sun is down, but has the night begun? And so the stage between sunset and the, the appearance of three stars, that's when you know that it's night. I can see three stars. Uh, that middle period of twilight is kind of question mark, and you got to go ask a rabbi if it's today or tomorrow. But this idea of however you count it, six days, 6,000 years, whatever it might be, the book of Abraham clarifies and simply calls them times, which could be of any duration and not necessarily uniform duration for every single one. Uh, I think science would much, would much prefer the book of Abraham account than the book of Genesis account, just in terms of the way it's described, that this was the first time and after we've accomplished whatever we needed to accomplish in that time period of creation, well, let's call it a day. <laughs> That's kind of how we say it. It's like, oh, I've done enough for today. Let's call it a day and move on. That's kind of what he did. We're going to create light, and then we'll call it a day. And then we'll create uh, an atmosphere, and then we'll call it a day. We'll, we'll call it a time, however long that time happens to last. And as he says at the end of each one, and it was good. So God had a time, and it happened to be a good time. He called it a day. He had a good time. Uh, he's, he's loving and living into this creation experience. There's a few other keys that I think we can put together before we get into the specific days slash times themselves. It's amazing at how often in the book of Moses and the book of Abraham, the phrase appears, and it was so even as I spake. I love that God does whatever he sets his mind to. And like we saw in the Abrahamic version, here's the plan, and it's going to go according to plan. And then sure enough, we go from spiritual creation to physical creation, and it is done even as God speaks. God is true to his word, which makes sense since Christ is the word of God. God has a plan, and it will be fulfilled. Trust him in that. He will do even as he speaks. Or this phrase that keeps coming up in the Abrahamic account only. And the gods saw that they were obeyed. I love that. It's, it's one thing to, to know that I will obey my own plan. I will keep my word. I will do as I spake. It's another thing, the other side of the equation. Will we do what he said? Will the elements respond to his almighty voice? And I love the way he puts it in, those, in the Abraham account. The gods saw that they were obeyed. He says it three times in Abraham 4. And then three other times, he even adds a little wrinkle to it. He says, And the gods watched those things which they had ordered until they obeyed. <laughs> I love that one. In fact, I quote it to my wife whenever she gives instructions to our children and then leaves them unsupervised. I was just laughing, quote Abraham, and say, Oh, honey, we have to watch those things until, the, until we are obeyed. Uh, unsupervised uh, agency doesn't exactly conform to divine law. And yet what I amazed about that phrase in the creation account is he's not just referring to the creation of Adam and Eve or even the animals. He's referring to creation as a whole and watching those things until he's obeyed. I mean, does the dust have to be supervised for it to come into place? Uh, evidently. What amazes me about this concept is talk about uh, supervision, talk about direction, talk about bringing chaos into order and bringing element itself into conformity with law. 
take it up a notch, and bring the animals into obedience to instinct, take it up a notch, bring human beings into, into a righteous exercise of agency. That one seems to be the, the one that takes the most time. But for God to watch his creation, to supervise it, to direct it, to guide the ongoing nature of this creation until he is obeyed. What's the ultimate goal for us with our agency is to offer it to him, to submit our wills, to reconcile our wills to the will of God rather than the will of the flesh. Jacob teaches that. Uh, Nephi teaches that beautifully. Well, God doesn't give up on us. He just keeps watching and waiting and working with us until we've learned to obey. He did that with, with the universe itself. And he's still holding out hope and, and engaging in the work so that we can come into that conformity with his divine will as well. It's amazing to me. Another phrase from Abraham 4. And the gods saw that they would be obeyed and that their plan was good. Again, that sense of, yep, we're going to watch till we're obeyed because we trust our plan. It was devised by omniscience itself. We just have to be patient in the process. Or one other phrase from Abraham 4. And the gods said, we will do everything that we have said and organize them. And behold, they shall be very obedient. I love his, his belief in us. He trusts his plan. He knows it's good. Uh, he trusts himself. We will do everything we've said. I know I will keep my word. But he even trusts us. And we're the biggest question mark in all of this because, because of this flowering of agency that he offers us. But for him to trust, to organize us, and to, to say from the get-go, they shall be very obedient. I know they're going to figure it out. I'll watch them and work with them until they do. Now, with all that as background, we start to see these seven days of creation. And yes, I include the seventh day as something he's creating on that day too. Let me fly through them quickly, and then we'll go back and, and find some details in each one. But big picture. Day one, he creates light. Day two, he creates the firmament. It also could be called a... Uh, an expanse, a canopy. We would, consider, we would call it the atmosphere. Day three, he creates land and sea, separates the two. And he brings plant life onto the earth. On day four, he creates the sun, the moon, the stars. On day five, sea creatures and birds. Day six, then the land animals and humans. And on the seventh, he creates the Sabbath. Now, like I said, we could go through astronomical time and try to make sense of the science behind these days of creation. But since the real questions are the why and, and the who, imagine this as far as what the Lord might be trying to teach us through this creation account. Day one, let there be light. Skeptics have wondered about this one because they think, how can there be light when there was no sun until day four? And yet I love that, that, that discrepancy because it suggests that the light that God is talking about there is not the light of the sun, not the mere sunlight, or, or at least not the S-U-N light. We're talking the S-O-N light. If Christ is the light of the world, 
if we take that incredible passage at the beginning of section 88, which again is the astronomy lesson for the Doctrine and Covenants, where he says that he, Christ, hath ascended up on high, as also he descended below all things, and that he comprehended all things, that he might be in all and through all things, the light of truth, which truth shineth. This is the light of Christ. And then how's this for astronomy lesson? As also he is in the sun, and the light of the sun, and the power thereof by which it was made. And then he goes the same thing with the moon, same thing with the stars. Same thing with the earth, he says. He says, the light which shineth, which giveth you light, is through him who enlighteneth your eyes, which is the same light that quickeneth your understandings, which light proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space. Sound like day one? The light which is in all things, which giveth life to all things, which is the law by which all things are governed, even the power of God who sitteth upon his throne, who is in the bosom of eternity, who is in the midst of all things. In some ways, even to take the language of Genesis, and God said, let there be light. Now, if he said, then he's using words. And what's one of Christ's nicknames? The Word of God. In fact, that's the one John starts his gospel with. In the beginning, so now we're thinking creation, was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. We're talking Christ. He's the Word made flesh. You see, words are creative uh, elements. I said I'm not an artist, and that is true when it comes to pen and ink or, or paint. But I do create with words. At least I try to. And by the words that I use, hopefully, realities pop into existence in the mind of those that are listening. I pray that's the case for you through these lessons. I speak, and, and reality appears in the mind. God spoke, and Christ is the Word of God. He said, let there be light. And Christ is the light of the world, the light of truth, which truth shineth. The light of Christ fills the immensity of space. It's the light whereby and the law whereby, remember he's watching to see these things will obey, whereby all things are created, whereby all things function. In some ways, when God says, oh, Christ is the word, let there be light, oh, Christ is the light, What's he doing to begin creation? Let there be Jesus. This is the architect hiring the general contractor. This is the Father sending forth the Son. And that is the light that fills the immensity of space. If we are trying to allow God to create us, to help us grow from without form and void into something that even he would consider very good, then where do we start? It's the Spirit of God that moves upon the face of the waters. It is Christ that brings sight and clarity and vision. It's like what C.S. Lewis said, that I believe in Christianity the way I believe in the sun. Not just because I, I can see the sun, but because of the sun, I can see everything else more clearly. In some ways, no matter what you're looking at, the only thing you're actually seeing is light. Light reflecting off that object. And so no wonder light has to begin our creative process. If we will establish Christ as the light whereby we see everything else, 
And then if we can use that light to judge, that's how Mormon teaches it. That is the light of Christ whereby we judge all things. So here's the God separating, dividing light from darkness. That's day one. So can we learn to distinguish through the light of Christ what will bring us closer to him versus what will drive us away from him? Are we able to divide light and darkness? Coming unto Christ, that's how we begin becoming very good in God. Now day two is the firmament, this atmosphere. And in the Genesis account, it describes separating the waters above from the waters beneath. Now that's ancient Israelite cosmology that, that pictured this kind of dome and there was water above, where do you think the rain comes from? And there's water beneath, where do you think springs of water come from? And here we are somewhere in this middle ground. Now science in our day has come up with a more accurate model. But in terms of God speaking to men according to their language, that they may come to an understanding, right? That's DNC 1, that's 2 Nephi 31. He's doing that with these ancient Israelites. So this is how you view the universe? Well, close enough. Uh, and since I'm really just trying to create you, let's talk about an atmosphere for a moment, shall we? Let's talk about a firmament that separates things from above and things from below. Is that starting to, to spur some thoughts within you? How good am I at differentiating the source of the things that I am, am believing or learning or living? Does it come from above or does it come from below? There's that great verse in section 46 that warns us not to be seduced by evil spirits or doctrines of devils or the commandments of men, for some are of man, others of devils, or to borrow the language of creation, some things come from above and some things come from beneath. Can we tell the difference? In the creation account, it's this firmament that separates the two. Uh, if you think about the brother of Jared and making these barges to cross their, their waters of chaos to come to a promised land, well, they have these holes that therefore can be opened, but also can be closed. Sounds like an atmosphere of sorts, some kind of oh, semi-permeable membrane if you're a biologist, something that allows some things to come in and keep other things out. That's what judgment is all about. That's what an atmosphere is for. Light can come through, but not all forms of light. And that atmosphere protects us. To think about the Jaredite barges, I need to breathe. Well, then open, open the hatch. Air will come in. And as soon as water starts coming in, then plug it. You understand what I'm trying to get at with this? In life, we need to, if this is in the world, but not of the world, there's another contrary that needs to be proven. And I need to be open to outside influences and hope that they'll be open to my influence as well. But there are certain outside influences that I do not want to welcome. And so to be selective, to be judicious, to be discerning on what water is from above and what is water from beneath. What should I allow in and what should I keep out? By the way, the atmosphere also is a beautiful symbol for the atonement of Jesus Christ since it is he that keeps negative influences out of our lives better than anyone. Our fears of climate change and global warming come because our atmosphere is damaged. And to see it allowing things in that are meant to be reflected back out into space. I fear more than, more than global warming. I fear the, the warming up to sin 
that is taking place in our day, where we are devoid of an atmosphere that protects us from those kinds of influences. Oh, we need to learn a lesson from day two of creation and make sure that our atmosphere, our firmament, is doing what it was intended to accomplish. Now day three, the land and sea, have we learned to distinguish between those as well? You see, the arithmetic of creation consists first of division and then of addition. These first days are all dividing. Let's divide light from darkness, which we could say dividing good from evil. Well, that's the, the first step, but hopefully we get better. And now we can start dividing between above and beneath. Where, what's the source of the information that we're, that we're buying into? This next step is, well, how about land and sea? Good and evil should be easy. Daylight from dark night, that's how Mormon puts it in Moroni 7. It's supposed to be, the way to judge is supposed to be that crystal clear. As the daylight is from the dark night. That's the beginning of our creation. That's day one. Well, it's going to get trickier. Sometimes it does seem to be shades of gray. Or water that I'm not sure where it came from. Is it from above or from beneath? Well, second step in learning to discern, we have to be able to distinguish between those, the, the sources there. Well, step three, day three, how about land versus water? I don't, I, this water, I'm not even sure where it's, if it's above or below, but the interesting thing about water is it seems to be constantly shifting, finding its easiest way downhill, typically. Whereas land, now that's something solid. It's interesting to try to learn to divide, to dis discern, distinguish, between shifting cultural currents and solid gospel ground. If the wise man built his house upon the rock and the foolish built it on the sand, well, it's the idiotic that built it upon the water, <laughs> okay? That there is, there's no stability there. And I think we live in a world of such shifting cultural currents that people end up living on the water and not being able to distinguish between that and what is true gospel ground. Elder Maxwell used to describe it as flying across Europe and shifting your culture depending on which country's airspace you happen to be in. Can you imagine how tiring that would be? Because how quickly you're, you're out of Portuguese airspace and into Spanish. And so you got to change your culture. But, but just when you started to learn to roll your R's in, in Spain, now you're on to France and it's a whole different language. But don't spend too much time trying to acclimatize yourself to France. Since very quickly you'll be in German airspace. You understand the analogy? I love what Elder Maxwell described there. And that's life upon the sea when we were meant to live upon the earth. To have solid ground beneath us. Have we learned to divide along those lines? Now, once we've mastered division, light from darkness, above from beneath, sea from earth, now we're ready for addition. And the first addition on day three is plant life. Now again, if we're thinking metaphorically and allegorically, what's the beauty of plants? Well, they're always growing toward the sun, seeking that life, that source of strength. They are, they are, there's life, there's growth, but they're growing in the right direction. They've determined that. Watch a sunflower. It'll even move to be able to find its way to the light. But this new life is still literally grounded. It's rooted. Those are words that Paul uses in some of his epistles. Grounded, rooted, established, settled. 
How rooted are we in solid ground? Are we rooted in earth that will bring us nourishment as we then draw towards the light? To think about what, how plants live. This is our, our initial foray into exercising our agency, learning to begin growing up in God. Oh, and by the way, it's not just God placing plants all over the earth. It's God allowing the earth itself to help produce them. It's really fascinating. In the Genesis version, let the earth bring forth grass and herbs and fruit trees and so on. Or in the Abraham account, let us prepare the earth to bring forth grass. And that's what they did. The gods organized the earth to bring forth grass from its own seed. You see how they're beginning to delegate creation? Uh, some things that only the gods can accomplish, but others, once we've created this, can it begin to participate in the creative processes? And the, the earth itself is doing that with, with plants that are growing out of it. Plants that are then producing seeds and allowing those seeds to proliferate uh, so that plant life begins to cover the planet. Now, before we get too far in this idea of addition and growth, let's make sure that we're putting things in proper order and organizing life, okay? We're, we're finally seeing life begin to develop. We're starting to grow in certain directions. Do we know what direction we should grow in? Well, that's why day four, when you see the creation of the sun, the moon, the stars, which the Lord says are for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Now talk about ordering and organizing your life. The way that, that the sun, moon, stars help accomplish that, where the the rotation of the earth, establishing days, the orbit of the earth around the sun, establishing years, the, the orbit of the moon around our planet, establishing months, giving us seasons. Again, if God subdivides creation into time periods or days, as they're called, to give us days and, and weeks and months and years, seasons of life, of growth, and of, and of rest. In fact, if you go back to the light versus darkness, it doesn't just have to be good versus evil. It can be just nights and days and, and times of growth, times of work, times of rest and of recovery. I've seen that in my own life in terms of growth cycles, uh, times where I have callings that stretch me to the limit and then times where God gives me a calling that just allows me to to rest a little bit uh, and, and recover some strength uh, before he throws me into, into another deep end later on. To see life stages from childhood to adolescence to young adulthood to, to marriage and family and old age and nearing the end of our mortal experience. To think of sun and moon and stars helping us put in perspective what stage of life we happen to be living in and to be okay with that time. To grow in God according to the stage of life that we happen to be in. And that same day he talks about a greater light to rule the day and a lesser light to rule the night. Are we okay with those kinds of distinguishing features? I guess this brings us back to our division arithmetic. Can we divide between greater and lesser influences? Or even if we're going sun, moon, stars as celestial, terrestrial, telestial, can we discern between those kinds of influences in our life as well? Remember that great talk from Elder President Oaks about good, better, best? Well, that sounds like stars, moon, sun as well. If, as we're growing up in God through these life stages, 
are, are we able to discern along those lines? Because once you've mastered that, then I think we're now ready to go from plant life to animal life. Because this is where things can get a little scary. Uh, if you're a parent of young children, there have been times, I'm sure, where Satan's plan seemed like a better alternative. <laughs> it's like agency? Yeah, that sounded way better in theory than in fact. Uh, or like when your kids are, are so little. Remember as young parents, you were so eager for, for your child to reach the next stage. Like, oh, they're crawling now, until you realize <gasps> they're crawling now. Uh-oh, they're mobile. It used to be easy. I, I put them somewhere and I needed to get something done really quick. I'd come back and I knew they were in the same exact spot. It's a, plant life is a little bit easier to, to keep track of because it's, it's rooted. Yeah, not so much with, with other kind of life. So again, let's go from plant life. We're rooted and grounded in solid earth. We're aiming and growing towards the source of all light and truth. Now, sun, moon, stars, we're starting to learn and differentiate between celestial, terrestrial, and telestial, or greater and lesser. We're living within life seasons and so on, and degrees of agency go along right along with it. Well, am I now ready to bring forth life from the water and from the air? Because those are the two forms of life that, that emerge in, in day number five. Now, when I think about agency, when it comes to sea creatures and birds, there's a difference here because not only can they choose to go left and right and forward and back, they can choose to go up and down, which I can't choose to do on my own uh, here in my terrestrial existence, terrestrial as in earthbound. So to me, there's something here in day five about spreading your wings, about exploring your options. Uh, speaking of life cycles, doesn't that sound a lot like adolescence? Uh, as a baby, you're just a plant and you're beginning to grow towards the source of whatever light and nourishment your parents are giving you. But then the next stage is you really start to spread wings and move in any possible direction, which can be a little scary at times. No wonder day five is followed by day six, where now let's talk about land animals, shall we? And eventually we'll get to humans uh, by the end of day six. And to me, if day five is a spreading of the wings and exploring of our options, day six is a disciplining of our agency to an understanding of where in the midst of all of this. I'm not sea from below. I'm not air from above. I'm right here in this middle stage, and I do have limits to what I am able to do. There's a, a, a spreading of the wings, but then a deciding of how am I going to live my life raising my family and, and performing my service and trying to grow up in God. And especially when we think not just land animals, but, but man and woman, I'm disciplining my agency. I'm, I'm choosing to limit myself in order to live into my divine potential. If I am created in the image of God, then am I going to discipline myself Am I going to limit my choices to those choices that will more fully make me become someone like him? And then with that, we're ready for day seven, a period of holiness. To, take, to me, it's not just a matter of, oh, and then God didn't do anything. So it's, it's time, to, time to, to take a nap. No, it's that he's, he's choosing to carve out space in this creative week, a day for rest. A day, well, there's the great phrase from the old hymns, 
take time to be holy. Judaism often considers their Sabbath a sanctuary in time. At time, again, we're back to division. Am I dividing work from rest? Am I dividing my work and glory from God's work and glory? Now, eventually they're supposed to be synonymous, but I do have a lot of the world's work to accomplish during a given week. I just need to make sure that I've established my priorities. Amidst all this division and all this addition, am I, am I focused on the things that will bring me home to God? In some ways, we've come full circle. If in day one, we separated light from darkness, which as I already said, could represent good from evil, but also if we bring it full circle back to the final day of creation, we're separating a day of rest from the days of work. We're separating sun down from sun up. Because in that given week, we need a day of rest. In that given day, we need some time to sleep. Yes, there's time to sweat, but there's also time to sleep. Yes, there is activity, but there is also interiority. Yes, there's industry, but there's also recovery. We're proving contraries all over again. Even the way Genesis describes that seventh day is fascinating. It says that God ended his work. Now we know from Moses that God's work never ends. So what does it mean that he ended his work? And especially on this day of rest, what, was God tired? Now this is omnipotence. It's, it's not motivated by fatigue. There's a certain sense of choosing to end something, even though the work, quote unquote, isn't completely finished. I've had to learn that the hard way because I'm, I'm a perfectionist and an amateur, and that's a, a difficult combination. Something's got to give, okay? Uh, and so for me, it's like, no, that, I think that's what took, my, took me so long with my, with my dissertation. I know there's more, one more book to read. I know there's more that I could learn. I know there's more to... It's probably why it makes these videos so long, right? There's, there's more. And there comes a point where you just have to end your work. There comes a point where you have to say, this is sufficient. And I'll allow the work to continue its own work because that's what's going to happen with the earth. Remember, the, the seeds will, the plants will produce seeds in themselves. He says the same thing about the animals, that there is that within them, they will begin to participate in creation. The work will go on. I just want other people to be involved in it. I'm going to have to call it a day. I'm going to have to end the work and push this reality onto my children. That even when, when rest is not a biological necessity, it is a spiritual one. That I, I'm God, I don't get tired, but I do end work in order to initiate rest. As part of this creation, there should also be recreation or recreation. Uh, if you remember the proclamation of the world on the family, which I recognize I still owe you that lesson. And my December was so insane, I, couldn't, I didn't have time for it. But I'll get to it eventually, I hope. Uh, but the proclamation talks about work and wholesome recreational activities. There's a contrary that needs to be proven. And we need to do both in our families. Well, same here, where you have six days of work and a day of rest, but not biological rest. God's not napping all day, although it's okay to take a nap on the Sabbath too, I hope. Uh, but what's he doing? A spiritual need for rest, for recovery, for interiority, for spiritual creation rather than temporal creation. In fact, my favorite definition of rest 
comes from section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. As we learn of, of Moses doing his absolute best to prepare his people to behold the face of God. But they don't. We'll see that in Exodus. And so they are forbidden to enter into God's rest while in the wilderness. And then this clarification, which rest is the fullness of his glory. Now, does that change your perspective on the Sabbath? A day of rest is a day of the fullness of God's glory. It's a chance for spiritual creation in the, after so many days of temporal creation. That one phrase has changed my view of the Sabbath. That this is my day to lean into and live into the fullness of God's glory. I, so I end my work. It's not done. I just had to end it. One of my, my advisors just put it bluntly. Papers are never finished. They're only abandoned. Okay? The, the best dissertation is a done dissertation. Just finish this thing. Okay? Call it a day. Call it a time. Call it a project. Call it good enough for now. It will go on creating. You now need to move on to other things. And, and at least once a week, that other thing needs to be spiritual creation. It needs to be tapping into the fullness of God's glory. It's a, it's a, beautiful, a beautiful day. No wonder it says in Genesis 2 verse 3 that God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Can you think of anything else that gets blessed and sanctified? In order for us to step into the fullness of God's glory, in the sacrament prayers, the emblems of Christ's atonement are blessed and sanctified. Well, what a blessing that we have a day that is blessed and sanctified for our blessing and our sanctification. That's what the Sabbath is for. I do not see it as a day of non-creation. I see God creating this sanctuary in time that creates us in many ways even better than the other days that precede it. So, quick review with an allegorical understanding of the creation account. Day one, establish Christ as the light whereby you see the world and learn to distinguish between light and darkness. Day two, decide what outside influences should be invited in and which should be kept out. What comes from above? What comes from beneath? Day three, learn to distinguish between shifting cultural currents and solid gospel ground. Seek life and growth, but stay rooted, stay grounded. Day four, order and organize your life around seasons and cycles and stages of growth. Distinguish between greater and lesser lights, between celestial and terrestrial and telestial influences, between good, better, and best. Day five, spread your wings, explore your options, even bring life from water and from air. Sound a little like baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost. But also day six, learn your limits and discipline your agency so that you can live up to your divine potential as children of heavenly parents. And then day seven, take time to be holy. Give God his due. Separate work from rest and live into the fullness of God's glory. That is how we go from without form and void into something that God considers very good. Now, as I said before, throughout this process, we see a shift of participation so that creation begins to become creator, working hand in hand with God. 
We see the earth bring forth plant life and plants having seed in themselves. We see the same thing with animal life, that animals are being are participating in the process by being fruitful and multiplying. And again, that speaks to the God that I know, one who is willing to share his work and glory with the rest of us, to initiate creation into creation, to participate with God. Now, there's one other element of participation here that, that foregrounds the ultimate participant, which is you and me. Because as it speaks at the end of day six about creating man and woman, we see a participation here on the part of the father and not just the son. The passage in question is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And God said, let us, so there's the plural pronoun again, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Dominion over the other creations because they are the closest thing to us as divinity. And so that dominion is a form of stewardship. We'll see it change after the flood in an interesting way. But this dominion, and so based on that, that plan, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now there's a lot there. First, the fact that we are created in the image of God. Let us make man. The Hebrew there is Adam. Let us make man. Let us make Adam. And we'll see later that Adam was a plural also, meaning both the man and the woman. Both Adam and Eve were Adam, were Adam. God created them, and it's an us behind that creation. Let us make man. Now we saw let us go down before and we wondered, is this us as in son and father? Is that us as in son and, and Michael or a more broad us as in Christ and the noble and great ones? Well, this one we know for sure is an us of the father, that he personally condescends to participate in this crowning act of creation because it's not metaphorical or, or allegorical here. This is literal, that we are sons and daughters of heavenly parents. So it's not even that we take after the divine attributes, because in the Moses version, this is Moses chapter 6, we'll get to it later, in the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. But now how's this for specific? In the image of his own body, male and female, created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. You see the oneness that's meant to exist between man and woman, husband, wife, and between God and humanity? We're created after the image of the body of God. And that applies as much to male as it does to female. Proclamation of the world on the family, gender is part of our our premortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. It's part of divinity, not just part of mortality. So think about what that means as far as heavenly parents, plural, are concerned. The us here is mind-blowing. Now, on the one hand, yes, we can say father and son. Because the Moses version, Moses 2.26, I, God, said unto mine only begotten, which was with me from the beginning, let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
And so he does. I, God, created man in mine own image, in the image of mine only begotten, created I him. We saw that last week with Moses chapter 1. I'm creating you, Moses, my son, in similitude of mine only begotten. But even that only begotten, let's be more specific. Christ is the only begotten Son of God in the flesh. In other words, in mortality. Spiritually speaking, we're all begotten, son, begotten sons and daughters of God. That's what the spiritual creation was for. And Christ is our eldest brother. But when it comes to physical creation, Christ is the only begotten Son of God in the flesh because that was required in order for him to be able to affect the atonement, okay? That he had to have divinity and mortality bound together in one. And that's where, where Christmas underwrites Easter, okay? That's where incarnation underwrites atonement. But there's another form of begotten. And that's not begotten into mortality, but Adam and Eve begotten into immortality as a son and daughter of heavenly parents. The Abraham version, chapter 4, verse 26, And the gods took counsel among themselves and said, Let us go down and form man in our image. By the way, I love this language of going down. Uh, it keeps coming up in the Abraham account. My name is Jared, and I've never, for most of my life, I never really cared much for my name. Uh, it was like, I... Who's Jared in the Old Testament? You barely meet him. Who's Jared in the Book of Mormon? It's always the brother of Jared that gets the focus. Until it hit me that the word Jared means to go down. And to think of the condescension of Christ, the going down of him. Jared becomes an amazing name for Christ, the ultimate condescender, which makes each of us brothers and sisters of Jared if you want to stick with the Book of Mormon story. Brothers and sisters trying to see our eldest brother clearly through the veil, as, as that brother of Jared got to. The brother of condescension himself, but made in his image, in his similitude. I, I, I've come to love my name based on that reality. But here's where the literal participation of God in the creation of, of Adam and Eve only, he delegates everything else my, through the power of mine only begotten. He, general contractor, Christ can take care of all the other forms of creation. But when it comes to creating my children, there's, that's not delegation anymore. Now it is divine participation. Elder McConkie put it this way in Promised Messiah. We know that Jehovah Christ assisted by many of the noble and great ones, of whom Michael is but the illustration, did in fact create the earth and all forms of plant and animal life on the face thereof. So there we have it on Elder McConkie's authority, that yes, the noble and great ones participated in creation as well. But notice how he goes on. But when it came to placing man on earth, there was a change in creators. That is, the Father himself became personally involved. All things were created by the Son, using the power delegated by the Father, except man. In the Spirit, and again in the flesh, man was created by the Father. There was no delegation of authority where the crowning creature of creation was concerned. Now, if that's not mind-blowing and soul-expanding, I don't know what is. 
the difference between Christ as the only begotten Son of God in the flesh into mortality versus Adam and Eve as son and daughter of heavenly parents in an immortal state in the Garden of Eden. I mean, you get a hint of this in the genealogy of Jesus that we find in the book of Luke as it traces it all the way back to Seth and then who was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. That's mind-blowing. Or the interesting hint when the Pharisees and scribes are trying to trap Jesus and they say, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? And how does Jesus get out of that situation? He says, well, show me a coin. And what's on it? He says, whose image and superscription is upon it? Whose face is on that coin? And they say, well, the image of Caesar. And then the Lord's response, well, fine. Render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But, and these are words drenched in significance, but render unto God that which belongs to God. You see, he just talked about Caesar's image. And what word do we see in these creation accounts? Let us create man and woman in the image of God. Have you received his image in your countenance? Alma asks. Well, in some ways, we've already had the image of God. We're just trying to live up to it and into it. It's who we are. I am a child of God is no mere primary song. It is the ultimate invocation of our identity, our purpose, our potential. And the fact that it includes both male and female in terms of humanity suggests that there is both a male and a female in terms of divinity. Yes, Eliza Arsenault was right. Truth is reason, truth eternal, tells me I've a mother there. And the feminine divine is, is right there in Genesis, waiting to be coaxed out to our understanding. Oh, it's amazing. Sons and daughters of divinity indeed, with heavenly parents and all that that entails. And with such sanctified parents, no wonder that parenthood itself can be sanctified in the same breath as the Lord then blessed them and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Subdue it, have dominion. So it's back to that idea of dominion, of stewardship, but not just over the earth. You're supposed to be fruitful. It's the same language that was used of the animals, but now it's my crowning creation. Male and female created he them and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. By the way, we always call that the commandment, and it, and it was, the first commandment that they're given. And yet notice how the phrase is, how the verse is begun, and God blessed them and said unto them, be fruitful. Having children, is it a commandment? Yes. But is it a blessing? Even more so. And I wish we could do a better job of convincing the world of that reality. That the, the power to procreate, to participate in creation ourselves, is one of the greatest blessings that God could ever give us. Now with that in mind, we're ready to, to really see what the Lord is teaching in, in Genesis chapter 2. Now there are scholars out there that see this as two completely disconnected creation accounts. Uh, that's one way to read it. Another way to read it is to see chapter 1 as more of a, a big picture, and then chapter 2 drilling down into the most important portion 
of that chapter one creation account, and that's the creation of Adam and Eve. You get more detail here than what we saw in, in Genesis chapter one. And to me, it puts things in more of a temple kind of context. To see chapter two of Genesis as, I'm not saying that this was Adam and Eve's endowment, but in a way, it's so similar to ours in terms of some kind of initiatory ordinance that helps you see yourself in profound and meaningful ways, including your body and what, it was, what it's meant to accomplish in creation. From there to go to an endowment where you truly see who you are and what your purpose in life is supposed to be. And then the culminating act in the temple, the sealing ceremony, where two become one eternally and a family is formed. Oh, to see chapter two of Genesis as an initiation into an understanding of our physical reality, into some kind of an endowment of of power through an understanding of identity and purpose, and then a culmination in, in creating a new eternal unit of man and wife. All of that happens in Genesis chapter 2. So let's dig into it. First, this focus on the body as part of our initiatory ordinance. Genesis 2 verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now there, with this confluence of dust and breath, we see the formation of a soul, which is described as, or defined as body and spirit. Well, body, there's element, there's the dust, and spirit, there's breath. But most pe other people who see creation here think, oh, well, that's God's breath. And so our existence is simply the breath of God, that in a way we don't exist separate from him. Now, the book of Abraham would clarify this. And it does an amazing job. It says, The gods formed man from the dust of the ground and took his spirit. And how's this for clarification? That is the man's spirit and put it into him and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. You see what difference that makes? Remember, the book of Abraham is our best source on pre-mortality. It described the council in heaven. It described the war in heaven. It described these noble and great ones and, and they will go down to help participate in the creation of the earth. Well, how's this verse for premortality also? That premortal individual existence, that this isn't God breathing in some kind of, kind of vague, uh, non-differentiated uh, life, rather taking the person's spirit and putting it into that person's body. This is individual premortal existence. That is the man's spirit. It's amazing. I remember having one conversation with, with someone on my mission. We got to be really close and so we could really kind of have fun with each other in disagreeing over doctrines. And he was really pushing back against premortality, going, no, there's no such thing. We were just the breath of God. And, and I was kind of pushing back and going, what? No. It, it's like, it makes it sound like creation is a process of God blowing bubbles. Remember that, those, that the little uh, container you'd have and you had the little stick and you'd put it down into this jar and pull it up and it had the, the soap on it and then you'd blow? And your breath combined with this, this liquid element would form these bubbles that would then go spread off through space. Is that creation? Is God just blowing bubbles? And then I laughed and I said, well, what are wicked people? Is that bad breath? And no, th this is... This is individual existence and God allowing our spirits to inhabit our bodies. 
That's the definition of a soul, an individual soul. Now, if that helps us understand breath, and breath in Hebrew is a great, a great word because it's, it's breath and it's wind and it's spirit. Well, what about dust? How does this factor in? Now, I had a student years ago. His name was John. He was hilarious. Uh, we've, we've kept in touch ever since. This was like 20 years ago. But he gave, he gave me a gift. And it was not meant to be much of a gift. It was meant to be a joke. Uh, not just to me, but to the teacher he originally submitted it to. You see, at the time, John was in a ceramics class in high school. I taught him in seminary. And he realized at the very last second, my final project is due tomorrow. I am dead. And it, this was the culmination of all he learned in this ceramics class. And he thought, I'm, I'm dead because I haven't, I haven't put in the time to create the masterpiece that my teacher wants from me. But then he realized, it was this stroke of, of devious inspiration. He said, you know, my, my teacher is kind of a hippie of sorts, and I bet this would work. And so what John did was he took a bunch of clay. He didn't even put it on the pottery wheel to create something uh, polished and, and beautiful. He just took a bunch of clay and started to mash it together with his bare hands. And he turned it into something that sort of had a human form, okay? Not like legs and arms so much, but just kind of smash it all together with some sort of torso and, and kind of pinch in the neck and here's the head. And then he took like a pencil, I think he said, to poke some holes for the eyes and to draw some lines across the head as if it were hair. This thing was hideous. Uh, and then he just let it harden and, and called it good. Now, this was the gamble on his part. Because he knew that once his teacher looked at this and thought, this took you like two seconds. Uh, this, this does not show you or does not show me what you've learned through this process of ceramics. Well, John's genius came in what he named it. And as he turned it in, and his teacher probably looked at it with horror, John just presented it with his total poker face and said, oh, this is my masterpiece. I call it Adam from the dust. And knowing the personality of his teacher, as, as they looked at it and just said, oh, I love it. It's like you can just picture God fashioning him from the clay and he's still in this, this rudimentary condition, not yet ready to breathe life into it. But man, I can just see the, the divine fingerprints all over this, this creation. It's a masterpiece. And sure enough, John got an A on this project. Hilarious. And he, there he was in my office as he gives me this, this, this creation of his. He has been laughing about it ever since. And to me, I keep it just as a reminder that that is not what God did with us. This was not God looking at the clock and going, day six is almost over and we got to call it a day soon and I still haven't done my crowning creation, but uh, what am I going to do? And so he just grabs, you know, grabs together some clay, some dirt and kind of fashions it into some rudimentary human and pinches the neck and, and pokes in the eyes and gives some hair and then whew, last breath before day seven begins. No, that is not our divine origin. In fact, Brigham Young himself had a bit, of, had some fun with this, as he described that that view that Adam was made literally from dust. And Brigham just laughed and said, "What? Like an adobe?" <laughs> I just picture old frontier Brigham uh, and an adobe kind of mud bricks being formed to to make houses and and dwellings and so on. And he's like, "No, that is not how God created Adam. We are not adobes 
we are children of God, then what's the point of dust? Well, on the one hand, it's a great metaphor, a great symbol for our nothingness. Remember King Benjamin teaches that? Uh, Samuel the Lamanite teaches that, that we are nothing. We are, or even last week when we were proving contraries on humanity, that we are dust and divinity. We're both. And to understand our nothingness from that perspective, maybe that's the, con the combining of the contraries with dust and breath. That yes, it's our spirit, but if we see it as the divine spirit of God, there's our divinity. There's that side of our dual nature. But yes, we are made of fallen earthly element. And that dust side of us should keep us humble. Or as Samuel Lamanite said, you are less than the dust of the earth because the dust obeys. Now remember what Abraham taught us, that maybe the dust was a little obstinate early on in creation and God had to watch it until he was obeyed. Well, it's taking us a lot longer to figure it out, to, to learn to exercise our agency in the right way and submit our will to the will of God. That does make us less than the dust of the earth. We're less obedient than it is. But when it comes to both our physical and our spiritual creation, we have heavenly parents to thank. One of my favorite statements along these lines comes from Parley P. Pratt in a masterpiece of writing called Key to the Science of Theology. He put it this way, In after years when paradise was lost by sin, when man was driven from the face of his heavenly father to toil and droop and die, when heaven was veiled from view, and with few exceptions, man was no longer counted worthy to retain the knowledge of his heavenly origin, then darkness veiled the past and future from the heathen mind. Man neither knew himself from whence he came, nor whither he was bound. At length a Moses came, who knew his God, and would fain have led mankind to know him too, and see him face to face but they could not receive his heavenly laws or bide his presence. Thus, the holy man was forced again to veil the past in mystery, and in the beginning of his history assigned to man an earthly origin. Man molded from the earth as a brick? A woman manufactured from a rib? Oh man, when wilt thou cease to be a child in knowledge? That is such an incredible statement from Parley P. Pratt. When are we going to grow up in God enough to know that, we, that growing up in God is a literal part of our divine inheritance? It's, we are children of heavenly parents and children are meant to grow up to become like those parents. Yes, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God in mortal flesh. But Adam and Eve our begotten son and daughter of God in immortal glory, placed in the Garden of Eden. If we could understand that, there is no greater initiatory into seeing ourselves, seeing our body for the gift of God that it is, that ye are the temple of God, the Spirit of God is within you. Oh, when will we cease to be children in knowledge? The moment we look in the mirror and see divinity staring back. The moment we can pray and call God our Father with real feeling 
and real understanding of what that title entails. This is profound truth, which takes us from the dust of the earth to the glories of the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2 verse 8, it speaks of God planting a garden eastward in Eden. Eastward, toward the source of light. We're, we are coming from God's presence to inhabit this earthly sphere. He focuses his brief description of Eden on two trees, a tree of life and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Those will be our focus next week, and so we'll hold off to talk about them when we discuss the fall. It then speaks of a river flowing through Eden to water it, then parting into four heads. We don't have to worry about the specifics of those four rivers. Names change and are repeated with time and so on. But to think of four different directions you could head as you are leaving the garden. To me, there's a great symbolism there. Uh, because if you think about the parable of the sower, there's four types of soil. If you think about Lehi's dream, there are four types of people in, in their relationship to the tree of life. And so to think about us, again, this is part of our, our endowment, so to speak, as we're trying to situate ourselves in Eden, understand who we are and where we should go from here, and what path will I follow throughout my life? Which type of soil, which group in the dream, will I find my way back to the Garden of Eden where I can ultimately partake of the tree of life. Even things like the river flowing out of Eden, that means Eden must have been at a higher elevation than its surrounding. And when it talks about the fall, we'll see next week, when, when, when they are cast out east of Eden, there's that great Steinbeck novel, east of Eden is the fallen world. So to go back to Eden, we'd have to go west. To go back to Eden, we'd have to go climb back up going upstream through these rivers. And we'd ultimately have to find our way past Cherubim and the Flaming Sword, which we'll meet next week, to get back to the Tree of Life. All of that, by the way, is temple imagery. The Temple of Solomon, uh, the Temple uh, in Ezekiel's vision, the Tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness, the Salt Lake Temple, uh, so many uh, Latter-day Latter -day temples are situated facing east. And on a hill, or even built with steps upward or progressing from room to room in an upward climb. So that what does entering the temple do? You go west. You're no longer east of Eden. You go up back into the presence of God. You pass cherubim, these sentinels that stand before you so that you can return to the presence of God. Like I said, tabernacle, temple, you are going west, you are going up, you are passing cherubim that are carved into the wood of the doors or embroidered into the fabric of the veil. You are coming back to God's presence. You're re-entering you're re Eden and coming back to the tree of life. Again, we'll see more of that next week, but the imagery here is so drenched in, in temple that, that I hope we think of that at the next time that we attend the temple ourselves. Now, in verse 15 of Genesis 2, God places Adam in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now, what does it mean to dress the garden, to keep the garden? If you look at the Hebrew originals, the word for dress can also mean to till, to work, to serve, to worship. Is that what we've covenanted to do through our own endowment? to sacrifice and to consecrate, 
to give all we can to God to fully serve him, we are here to dress the garden. And to keep it, that word can mean to watch, to preserve, to guard, to care for, as in to keep the commandments, to guard the garden, to watch it, to preserve it. In some ways, they were supposed to be their own cherubim and flaming sword before they were replaced. That's another part of what we covenant, to obey God, to keep his word, to care for the covenant that he is bringing us into. Adam and Eve, this is your role here in this mortal experience. It's how you'll learn to grow up in me. Now, he's told about the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And like I said, we'll save that discussion for next week when we, when we fall alongside Adam and Eve. But he's also told about his inability to move forward in the plan on his own. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Now, there are a few realities there we all need to recognize. The first has to do with that reality of it is not good for us to be alone. Now, that's ironic. Consider that we now live in a day that that deifies the individual to the point if we could call it the cult of individualism and you do you and you can be your own person and and the irony of social media that supposedly connects us to everyone and yet never have we felt more disconnected as a, as a human race. To see the, the shuttering of selves, the atomization of the individual, that I'm not connected to anyone else and don't have to be. I really can do my own thing. And that's the adversary pushing up against that reality first spoken in the Garden of Eden. It's not good for us to be alone. It's one of the great things about church, that it establishes community in ways that few other things can. It's one of the purposes of the family, to make sure that we are never alone. To think about the gathering of Israel on both sides of the veil. Joseph's whole purpose was gathering people together. It was ending individualism on its own. There is a part that individualism is necessary. It's a contrary, but it has to be proven with its counter, and that is community. Individuality is a blessing, but it becomes a curse when it is uncoupled from its contrary of community. And we need to learn to balance that better in a day that doesn't care about the balance at all. It is not good for us to be alone. And so what does God say to Adam? I will make for him and help meet for him. Now, history has, has wreaked havoc with that phrase and unfortunately has lowered women to the point of, well, they're just supposed to be helpers. They're supposed to be servants. It's just a helpmeet to the point that helpmeet has become like a one word uh, vocabulary term. No, in the scriptures, it is an help space meet for him. And those two words, help and meet, are incredible once you understand what the Lord is really saying here. The word help in Hebrew is ezer. And other than this example, when it refers to Eve, ezer always refers to God. That this isn't just some kind of servant that's doing your bidding. This is the kind of help that only God can give. When Moses names one of his sons Eliezer, 
Azer is that word for help. And Eli, El is God, E is my. So Eli means my God. Eliezer means my God is help. The only real help I can get comes from God. And yet what's, he, what's Genesis suggesting? Your spouse is meant to be a help as well. An enabling power. In the days of Samuel, when with God's help, the Israelites are able to, to beat the Philistines, they set up a stack of rocks as a memorial, and they call it Ebenezer. If you think about Ebenezer, the name's been ruined by Ebenezer Scrooge, right? But Ebenezer, Eben is stone, and Ezer is help. And so Ebenezer is this, this rock of help as a memorial to the divine help that God provided his people Israel. Listen to the psalmist. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. You get this sense of creation? He made heaven and earth. You get this sense of the elevation of Eden? I will look up to the hills from which comes my help. When you think of help, there's only two things you can think of. And one is God. The other is your spouse. And in your spouse's case, she or he is a help meet for you. Meet is often translated in other uh, Bible translations as suitable. This is a help that is suitable to you. The word in Hebrew is kenigdo, and it actually means in front of, or opposite, like facing, or corresponding to, as in your equal. What I love about this, this is a helpmeet is not meant to minimize women. Again, if you are created in the image of your mother in heaven, as a son is created in the image of his father, then to see in that divine couple the example that we are meant to grow into, that we are meant to help one another in ways that God himself would help us, and that we are meant to be meet, suitable, corresponding, equal, facing each other. It's an incredible phrase. To think then in this case of Eve being created because Adam, number one, realizes I can't do this by myself. It is not good for men to be alone. Everything God has said so far about the creation, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's interesting the way God does it with practically every day of creation. For example, and he said, let there be light, and there was light, and he saw the light, and behold, it was good. You see the process? First he envisions, then he executes, then he examines, and finally he evaluates. He said, let there be light. Okay, this is what I'm envisioning for this stage of creation. Next, and there was light. He executes his plan. Then he beheld the light. He's examining his work, and then he evaluates. And behold, it was good. And each of those evaluations, it's always good, except here where he sees a lone man in the Garden of Eden and says, it is not good, not good for man to be alone. What's he going to need to be able to live up to his divine potential for him to participate in creation? He's going to have to find and help meet for him. He's going to have to be blessed with an enabling power that corresponds to him now, I don't know a better way to describe grace. Grace is defined as an enabling power. Well, there's help. 
And if it's corresponding to you, if God's grace, grace is sufficient for you, it's exactly what you need to bring you into communion with God. No wonder grace is a feminine name. I have a niece that's named Grace, and it's just such a beautiful, it's an help meet. It's a grace of God. And husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Do we see our companions not as some helpmeet that's supposed to just help us get some stuff done, but rather an enabling power that corresponds to us? I hope we see one another, husbands and wives, the way God means to see us. And especially for you sisters, if you have ever felt less than, and if, especially if anyone has ever used scripture to try to justify that, we'll talk about this more next week, because the fall, more than anything, has wreaked havoc on the world's view of women. And that needs to change. And I hope it, I hope it will with our understanding next week. But even now, understanding womanhood as divinity, understanding womanhood as enabling power, as equal to manhood, to understand what God intends for daughters and sons to see in themselves, it is empowering. In fact, uh, if you ever want to read an incredible book, Beverly Campbell wrote a book called Eve and the Choice Made in Eden. Uh, again, next week is a perfect place to, to really prepare with that. But in this book, she described what she was learning about Ezer Kenegdo, about help meet. And she shared this with a sister-in-law of hers. She was 80 years old. She'd just come home from serving a mission. And once she internalized these truths, this sweet old sister sent Beverly Campbell a letter and said this, I was very excited about what you have found, and still am, especially the origin and meaning of the word help meet and the implication it gives to Eve's position. I sat frozen, actually feeling the blood drain from my face, awed with a joyous feeling I will never forget, but crying at the same time. I wondered why I should feel all this emotion, and suddenly this thought came to my mind clearly. It's true. I am who I always thought I was. For you, sister saints, especially any who struggle with a feeling of inferiority. May these truths help reassure you that who you really are is, is divine. It's breathtaking. It's awe-inspiring that you are God's work and glory because he wants to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of woman every bit as much as he wants to bring it to pass for men. And in fact... One thing I love about the way it's described in Genesis is originally it's God's words that say it's not good for man to be alone. But then what he does is he has Adam go and name all of the animals. That's his, his first work. And the interesting thing about naming animals, God brings the animals to, to Adam and Adam names them. And whatever he calls them, that's the name they go by. Now, there's an interesting thing about names, and we've talked about this in prior lessons, uh, that there's a power in being able to define something else. This is part of Adam exercising dominion over all other things. He gets to define them by labeling them, by naming them. And we talked about that in terms of churches and how they're called. 
and and how people have tended to name other people in derogatory ways because it's a way of establishing dominion and ownership over them. I can call you whatever I want. So you're, you're no longer a Jew, you're a Christian. You're no longer a Catholic, you're a Lutheran or a Protestant. You're no longer an Anglican, you're a Methodist. You're no longer a Christian, you're a Mormon. And us being able to establish our true identity by choosing the name that God has given us as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, there's power in naming. And so there's power in Adam giving names to these animals. But in the process of it all, that's when he realizes, wait a minute, all these other animals come in pairs. There's male and female. If they were told to be fruitful and multiply, and then they were put in a position where that's a possibility, what about me? And so then there's this moment of recognition on Adam's part. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found and help meet for him. Every animal has found a corresponding animal, something meet for them. I haven't. And, and if it was God's turn first to say it's not good for man to be alone, it's now Adam's moment to realize the same. Something's missing here. And I think often God allows us to come to those kinds of realizations on our own. As we look around the world and see how things ought to be and realize where I'm falling short, I'm going to need help here. And so he then is given this great gift. And that's where initiatory to endowment turns into endowment to sealing. And to see what happens in these last few verses of Genesis chapter 2. When the Lord God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Now if we're looking for lessons to learn here and examples to follow, be careful how you read those two verses. Because here it suggests that, oh, the best way to find a spouse is to fall asleep and then wait for God to bring her to you. <laughs> now, for my institute students, especially my young men, don't go that route. Okay? Don't just assume that God is going to bring her to you, especially if you're spiritually asleep all the time. No, it's going to take a lot more work on your part to get up to the point that you are worthy of and help meet for you. Okay? So live into that and live up to that. But one thing that is worth learning is this rib metaphor, which again, borrow from Parley P. Pratt's statement earlier that, oh, when will we grow up and not have to be treated like children in terms of learning our divine origin? If dust was symbolic of, of where Adam stood in relation to God, then the rib is symbolic of where Eve stands in relation to Adam. And where is that? Well, it's side by side. There's the rib. It's not the head to rule over man, nor the foot to be walked all over by man. It is the rib. This is something that is closest to the heart. And I hope that we husbands can see our wives in those terms. I actually once had a student, I was asking a seminary class, what other examples, what other things can you learn from the rib metaphor? And one young man raised his hand and he said, well, ribs are, they're meant to protect the, the vital organs. And I thought, well, we're going way too literal here. And then I realized, no, you're totally right. 
to think of woman, when I know that man is supposed to protect according to the proclamation to the world and the family. And there have been a few times in my life where I've cursed that, where we're out camping and we hear some noise outside the tent and my wife's like, honey, go see what that is. And I'm like, oh, I'm as scared as you are. How come I curse you proclamation? Uh, but then I go out to try to protect my family from whatever the sound was. Well, yes, that's true. But so often it really is the, the wife and the mother who is the, no wonder the Lord himself talks about the hen not the rooster, the hen gathering her chickens under her wings for protection. That wing, that, that rib, that, that woman bringing her children close to defend them, to protect them, to protect the institution of the family. It's amazing the role of God's daughters in all of that. In fact, even if you go back to ezer, that Hebrew word for, for help, it comes from a primitive root that means to surround. It's like I'm trying to surround you so I can help you and I can protect you. Well, sound like ribs? It's amazing these literary plays on words and things that you'll see in, in Scripture. And, and to see what Eve is being described as, this rib. I mean, even as, as Adam comes to recognize it, this is now verse 23. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, again, this is metaphorical, not literal. Men have the same number of ribs as women do. Okay, There's not something missing from, from our rib cage. But there is something missing from man when he thinks he is all sufficient on his own. And that's true of either gender. We need one another. So as Adam realizes, I am incomplete without my help meet for me, without my corresponding equal strength and enabling power. And so I need, and we need to become truly one. We'll see that in the next verse. But for Adam's realization, by the way, here when he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Again, play on words there. We see man within the word woman in English. But man, ish, and woman, isha, in Hebrew, same thing. It's the same term we're talking about. No, matter we can, no, no wonder we can use Adam to refer to them both. Now, in this instance, this is not man establishing dominion over woman and therefore calling her by name. Huge difference here. Adam is establishing dominion over the animals by naming them. But here, it's not a, a naming, like, I think I'll call her this as some form of, of dominion. Rather, it's a form of recognition because he calls her the only thing that, that she could be called. You can call a giraffe or a hippopotamus or a horse or a, or a bird, whatever. A rose by any other name, I guess, would smell as sweet. But in this case, this is woman. I'm not defining her. I'm recognizing her identity as a help meet for man, as my opposite half, the other side of my contrary, that has to be proven here. She came out of man to say that man is incomplete without her, that man and woman are meant together to become one. These are halves of the whole. These are sides of the same coin. They, this is yin and yang. This is proving contraries. The male-female is one of the deepest contraries we have to prove. 
and Adam gets it. This is woman. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now, I don't think it would be very romantic for a young man to get down on one knee and hold out the, the engagement ring and say to the, his would-be fiancé, can I have my rib back? <laughs> but to me, there is something profound about that, that realization. An admission on his part of his incompleteness without this corresponding strength. Adam understands. Verse 24, therefore, here's the lesson we should all take away from it. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Those two words speak volumes, leave and cleave. That for this, a man should leave father and mother. Now, it's amazing that that would refer to Adam first off. If there were ever someone who you'd think uh, that word wouldn't apply, <laughs> leaving father and mother, who are you talking about? Well, in a way, though, he is next week forced to choose between staying in the Garden of Eden alone or following his wife, leave in order to cleave. And even when it came to divine parents, in Adam's case, it was important to follow his wife into this fallen world. Again, we'll discuss it all next week. But in our case, all the more reason to realize the need to leave along with the need to cleave. I see that often in young, in young couples that, have a, that, that want to do the second verb but have a hard time doing the first. Now, this doesn't mean leave for good and cut off all connections, right? The same sociality that exists in this life is, is supposed to exist uh, among us in the next, coupled with glory. So stay close to your parents. So stay close to your in-laws, but stay closest to your spouse. This is a new eternal unit that has been formed through a sealing ordinance. And in this case, by the way, since death has not yet entered into the picture, the fall has not yet occurred, then this is not till death do you part. I love that this initial wedding in Eden is an eternal one because there's no other possibility. So leave father and mother, live into this new eternal unit as husband and wife. That's where your participation in creation will take place, where you will become one flesh spiritually and one flesh physically in the, in the act of being able to create life yourselves. It's an incredible promise. Verse 25, he then concludes this, this creation account. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, if you've ever been pantsed in public, or if you've ever had that horrible nightmare where I used to get this when I was a kid and I show up to primary and I was in the buff and I, was, I just wanted to crawl under a chair somewhere. It's nakedness and shame seem to be almost synonymous. It is only childhood innocence and early childhood at that that allows one to be naked and unashamed by it. Now, to me, there's something profound about, about that statement that when Adam and Eve were married, they could be completely uncovered, uncovered before one another and uncovered before the all-seeing eye of God and neither one had anything to be ashamed of. I mentioned last week that when we would make those morals of the story in, in Old Testament seminary, we had one that showed Adam and Eve fully clothed, but it said 
live your life so in such a way that you can be naked and unashamed. And, and I said to my students, you better be able to explain this to your parents if they come and look at this on the wall at parent-teacher conferences. Okay, I don't want to get in trouble uh, as we're talking about being naked and unashamed. But the idea behind it was, can you live your life in such a way that you're not ashamed? To be an open book, especially in marriage, to let your wife or husband see everything and, and not to be ashamed by it. Now, that does not mean we lived a perfect life before we met one another. Uh, none of us have. And so thankfully, as we'll learn next week, Christ has an amazing way of covering our nakedness. And that's through the atonement. But only through the atonement. And through living the gospel, keeping the commandments as best as we possibly can, with his enabling grace, his corresponding help. Only then can we be unashamed before God and before those that we love. To me, there's something powerful about ending the creation account because as we shift to chapter 3 and next week we get into the fall, to end with this culminating act, President Hinckley said that the culminating act of the creation was the creation of woman. Uh, that, that the end of day 6 you get woman's creation, and that culminates it all. Well, to me, even more than that separate act, it's the, the joining of the two that to me would be the real culminating act of creation. In fact, to see creation as incomplete, since Adam himself was incomplete without Eve, now to any of you who find yourselves still in that in that individual incompleteness, my heart goes out to you. And rest assured, as prophet after prophet has promised, that if you will continue faithful, then no blessing will ultimately be withheld from you. Understand that we're all still works in progress. That God hasn't said very good and it's done on any of us just quite yet. But if we can live up to that promised blessing the blessing of the sealing ordinance, where two can truly become one with each other, as the two of them, one of them, then becomes one with God. That's what the at-one-ment of Jesus Christ was all about. So wherever you happen to be in this creation process, be patient with God as he is patient with us. He's still watching us to see if we will obey. So may we obey every blessing will ultimately come. Now, my friends, as we wrap up today's lesson and steal our nerves and prepare ourselves to, to leave the garden next week, I hope more than anything that you have seen yourself through this creation account and that you've seen the hand of God still working on his work and glorying in his glory. I hope more than anything you've seen Jesus Christ through it all because there are that the signature of the artist is somewhere on this canvas. In fact, it's all over it. Day one, let there be light, Christ as the light that fills the immensity of space. Day two, the atmosphere, Christ keeping the bad out and the good in. The atonement does both so perfectly. Day three, the dry land, Jesus Christ is the rock of our salvation. Or even the fact that it was the third day that 
that land emerged out of the chaos of water, just like it was the third day that Jesus emerged from the grave, plants emerging that day, with Christ as the tree of life himself. Day four, the sun, the moon, the stars, the seasons, the days, the years, the earth revolving around the sun. Do we? Do we revolve around the Son of God? Every day bringing new light as it comes from the east. Oh, there's a great metaphor for the second coming there. Darkness always being followed by light. The evening and the morning constitute the day. And so Christ will always come to replace darkness with light, to bring life out of death. Day five, birds and sea creatures. Christ is the living water. Christ conquers Leviathan, Isaiah will say. He is a bird that has healing in his wings, as Leviticus will show, as Malachi will, will state. Day six, land animals. Christ is the lion and the lamb. He's the good shepherd. He notes the fall of every sparrow. And the creation of man in the image of God, gay in similitude of the only begotten, have we received his image in our countenance? And day seven, the Sabbath, a day of rest, of a fullness of Christ in his glory. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, he says, and I will give you rest. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the gardener of Eden. He's the almighty son of God. He's the beginning and the end. He is the creator of worlds without number and the redeemer of the inhabitants of everyone. Oh Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars and hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. We have sensed and seen a portion of that power today. I pray as you continue studying his words in scripture and seeing his handiwork everywhere around you, I hope you will respond to that greatness with the gratitude it deserves. If we do, then how can we not sing? Then sings our souls. O Savior God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art.